Bienvenidos y welcome to Crónicas de la Raza. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles. On tonight's program, we continue honoring International Women's Day by featuring all women's voices. We will start the program with Noticias Sin Fronteras, produced by Vilma V. We will then go to an interview with Carolina Morales around Obama's recent statements on Venezuela, where he has called Venezuela a threat, a security threat, and has declared sanctions against Venezuela. And our very own Nina Serrano will speak to 17-year-old Brenda Quintana who's one of Richmond, California's Poet Laureate. All this and much more, stay tuned. This is Vilma V with Noticias Sin Fronteras, news headlines without borders from America Latina for the week ending March 8th. Venezuela. Tensions between the United States and Venezuela continue to rise as both countries announce new measures illustrating the deteriorating relationship. This week, President Obama issued an executive order declaring a national emergency with regards to Venezuela. And last week, the Maduro administration ordered the U.S. to cut its diplomatic staff stationed in Venezuela to less than 25 people. The U.S. has targeted at least seven Venezuelan government officials with sanctions for alleged human rights violations, including the head of the Venezuelan police and the director general of its National Intelligence Service. The Maduro administration has banned a number of U.S. citizens from visiting the country, including former President George Bush and former Vice President Dick Cheney. Venezuela charges the U.S. with hypocrisy on the issue of human rights, and in particular, the mass repression and incarceration of Afro-descendant communities in the United States. Mexico. The mothers of Ayotzinapa's 43 missing male students headed an international Women's Day march last Sunday in Mexico City. The march was held the day after an event titled Women in Ayotzinapa, where the mothers of the disappeared students spoke about their experience and publicly vowed to continue their search for justice in the matter. Carmen Cruz, the mother of one of the missing students, stated, quote, We want to make it very clear to the federal government that we are not afraid. That is why we ask people to continue uniting and organizing because they know where our sons and daughters are and if they have not found them, it's because they have not wanted to. The case of the missing students has ignited a firestorm across Mexico with protests and demonstrations occurring on a weekly and sometimes daily basis particularly in the Mexican state of Guerrero, where the airport has been shut down several times. Last week, the Mexican Attorney General Jesus Murillo Caram was removed from his office. Activists continue to demand the resignation of Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto. Argentina. A joint investigation by European media outlets, The Guardian, the BBC, Le Monde, and others, has uncovered a cachet of documents revealing HSBC Bank secretly helped clients funnel billions of dollars to offshore accounts in order to evade government taxes. Argentina is seeking to repatriate billions of dollars from the bank, which were held by Argentinian individuals and companies in Switzerland through an HSBC subsidiary in Geneva. It is seeking an international arrest warrant for an Argentine accountant living in the UK, Miguel Abadi. He allegedly funneled over a billion dollars offshore through a single London-based investment fund. The Argentinian officials were given the data on the secret Swiss accounts through the efforts of the French government, which had received the information from HSBC former employee and whistleblower Hervé Falciani. Brazil. Brazil's Supreme Court has approved the investigation of dozens of politicians for their alleged involvement in a kickback scheme at the state-run oil firm Petrobras. Investigators allege private firms paid government officials in order to receive lucrative Petrobras contracts. 
while the 54 people accused of taking bribes include a former president and the speakers of both chambers of commerce, President Dilma Rousseff has been cleared of any involvement in the scheme. Under Brazilian law, politicians and cabinet members can only be tried by the Supreme Court. This has been a summary of some of the latest news headlines from America Latina. I'm Vilma V for Noticias Sin Fronteras and La Raza Chronicles. If you have a news item or feedback that you would like to share, email us at larazachronicles at kpfa.org. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Cronicas de la Raza. You heard on our news, Noticias Sin Fronteras, a report on what's happening right now in Venezuela. Obama has recently announced that he will push for sanctions against Venezuela. He's also declared Venezuela a threat. We have on the line with us Carolina Morales, who is from Venezuela and has been doing a lot of work to raise awareness and reframe the mainstream discourse around Venezuela. She has been putting on an important event at the Center for Political Education in San Francisco. And this event is called A Dos Años de la Siembra de Chavez. Two years after the death of Chavez, it's looking at what has happened, what are the ways that people have gained and benefited from Hugo Chavez's work in Venezuela, and where is Venezuela now, not just from what we hear on the news, but really hearing from the voices of people on the ground in all sectors. Thank you so much, Carolina, for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me, Julieta. So, Carolina, let's start with the breaking news. Just in the last couple days, Venezuela has been in the news a lot because of Obama's recent speech where he talked of sanctions. Can you fill our listeners in about what's happened? So, unfortunately, this is newer that, that he's escalating his discourse and the White House discourse on Venezuela. But since Chavez's death, the escalation of against the Venezuelan government has been happening gradually. Just last year, there was a bill introducing Congress. Some right-wing Congress members from Florida were requesting sanctions against Venezuela. And then a few months back, Obama signed that bill. And then just yesterday, Obama made a speech saying that Venezuela is a national security threat to the U.S. because of alleged human rights violations and corruption. It's very unfortunate that Obama is making such accusations. They don't really have a base, and they just seem like more and more excuses for the U.S. to have more of their hands on Venezuela, our natural resources, our oil, which we know, you know, the U.S. is still the the largest buyer of oil from Venezuela, so our largest buyer. We're just trying to be a self-determined nation, and that's what we've been doing for the last 15 years. And it's clearly something that Obama and the White House and the current government in the United States doesn't approve of. So what has the reaction been from the government in Venezuela, along with the people, since you are doing a lot of work with people organizing on the ground in Venezuela? Yes, I mean, organizers in Venezuela who are for... Um, social justice, racial and economic justice are very upset about this, are very upset at the U.S. continuing its imperialist policies that don't allow true self-determination for peoples, upset that the United States continues to be in this train of trying to trample over governments in Latin America, 2009, the Honduran coup, in Paraguay a couple of years ago with the coup as well, and that they, they seem to be kind of putting those seeds, trying to put those seeds against the Venezuelan government. And also the, the government itself is, of course, uh, frustrated with the United States trying to be the empire that has to tell everybody else how to govern and how, how to be. So Maduro... I had a great speech yesterday where he just asked Obama to let Venezuela be the peace nation that we are, that we have our own right 
to self-determination and we are a sovereign nation, an independent nation. We don't need another colonizer. We freed ourselves from Spain many, 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 many decades ago. So people in Venezuela, you know, are, are trying to figure out how to, how to respond in a more practical way uh, to maintain safety and peace in Venezuela, which is obviously what we all want. I'm not sure that's what Obama and his administration want, but for sure the Venezuelan uh, people, the Venezuelan government, and Venezuelan organizers, that's what, what we all want. That's the voice of Carolina Morales. She is from Venezuela, and she's done a lot of organizing there, along with here in the Bay Area. It's really good timing for people who are hearing about this, and they want to learn more because they will have an opportunity to do so, to learn more about what's happening on the ground in Venezuela. In just a couple days, there'll be an event at the Center for Political Education. Why don't you tell us about Adolfo Años de la Siembra de Chavez? Two years after Chavez's death, you all did this event last year. It was very successful. Why don't you tell us about this? this event, why you all started it last year. Yes. So Chavez passed away now two years ago on March 5th. Um, Hugo Chavez is a great leader, not only for the Venezuelan people, but also for all of Latin America and all of the countries in the world that have been fighting for independent self-determination, racial and economic justice for everybody. And his passing, it's very, very sad for many of us. And yet we see it as a sowing. We see it as Travis's seed, uh, the seeds of his legacy and his vision sown into the ground for us to continue nurturing it and growing it um, and seeing the fruits of it. So last year we started it because it was going to be the first anniversary. And I went down to Venezuela last year and spent six weeks there working, doing interviews, visiting family. And I brought really cool interviews with organizers from the grassroots that have been involved in different sectors of Venezuelan grassroots organizing. And in fact, the interviews are all now online on YouTube. And we were talking about basically the reality and the truth of what was happening a year after Travis's sewing or his passing. And people were very, very sad and very emotionally impacted by his death and at the same time very fueled by his legacy and by wanting to continue that work that had been happening since before the Bolivarian Revolution. So this year, you know, March 5th, we decided let's, let's do it again. Let's reconnect with organizers in Venezuela to hear what's happening now. We didn't do it last week on March 5th because there are a lot of events that happen in Venezuela and it was going to be hard for organizers there to connect with us. So we waited until this week, and look, by, by the grace of, of something larger than us, we have this opportunity to also respond at the same time to Obama's administration's uh, wrongful remarks about Venezuela. And so we'll be speaking live via video chat with two Venezuelan organizers, one that works with uh, LGBT communities, and one that has worked with different government agencies and also with campesinos um, and campesinos, uh, right? And we'll be hearing from them, basically, what, what's really going on in Venezuela, how they see uh, Chavez's legacy continuing, and what's their, also their reaction to, to this current moment with Obama's remarks and, and accusations. So we're very excited to have you all there. The corporate media doesn't, as you all know, because you'll hear this amazing show, La Raza Chronicles, and you tune into KPFA, that means you know that the corporate media doesn't tell us the truth about what's going on around the world. And this is a really great moment to connect with the true reality of Venezuela. Come in this March 12th, this Thursday, in two days at 6 p.m., We'll be in San Francisco at 518 Valencia, the Eric Quesada Center, which, you know, Eric Quesada, an amazing housing rights organizer in San Francisco who passed away a few years ago and who loved, loved Venezuela a lot and the Bolivarian Revolution. So it's very perfect for us and for me to have this event in the Eric Quesada Center, 518 Valencia. Uh, so I hope to see you all there at 6 p.m. 
and we'll continue this conversation about uh, what's going on in my country. Carolina, so if we have people listening that for some reason can't make it out on Thursday, which we recommend everyone tries to make it out, it's right accessible to bar and it's a event where no one's turned away for lack of funds. But if people cannot make it, how can they stay up on what's happening on the ground in Venezuela? Can you recommend a couple places for folks either to get news or to organize here in the Bay Area? Yeah, so to get news online, I would recommend telesur.net at T-E-L-E-S-U-R, telesur.net. They have news both in English and Spanish. Also, VenezuelaAnalysis.com. Uh, it's been around for a long time. And to organize here, you know, the, the Answer Coalition from time to time has uh, really great events. In fact, uh, Answer Coalition uh, together with BALSAC, which is another coalition, uh, Bay Area Coalition, put together a rally last week uh, for March 5th. I was there and representative from different racial and social justice groups were there as well, honoring Chavez's legacy. So if you look for um, Answer Coalition or BALSAC Coalition, um, you can also go to other events. And the Center for Political Education, which is helping me host this event, also has really great events about Venezuela and different leftist countries and, and, and projects around the world. So, Carolina, and if we have people that want to attend that really prefer to receive their information in Spanish, um, how will the event accommodate that? That's great, Julieta. The event will actually be completely bilingual. The folks in Venezuela will be speaking Spanish, and then we'll, have, um, we'll be moderating both in Spanish and English, and there will be interpretation in both languages. That's the voice of Carolina Morales. People can plug in and stay connected and also attend the event on Thursday at the Center for Political Education, which is in San Francisco's Mission District on Valencia near 16th Street. Muchísimas gracias, Carolina, por estar con nosotros. Thank you so much, Julieta. Los que mueren por la vida no pueden llamarse muertos. Y a partir de este momento es prohibido llorarlos. Compañero Hugo Chávez, presente. La revolución bolivariana, presente. Let's go. Yo en Caracas, el proceso va para adelante. En el Chicago, el proceso va para adelante. Yo en el South Bronx, el proceso va para adelante. It goes worldwide, el proceso va para adelante. I'm upset that they took our building. Next thing, the comandante, man, I know they killed them. Something going on, I gotta read the signs. Something telling me that it's about that time. Time to step it up, cause I still smell sulfur. Still smell the money in this capitalist culture. I'm dedicating verses to my boy Jamil. He out there in Venezuela, front line is real. Hunts Point, New York, 2005. That's when I realized the revolution's so alive. We ain't never had a president come around mine. He brought oil for the poor in the winter time. He showed love to the Bronx, that's called solidarity, we show love back, ain't no politician scaring me, anti-imperialist, till I go delirious, the work is getting serious, that's why they keep fearing us, do the mathematics, Hugo Chavez was the baddest, I gotta work like Chavez, do the mathematics, Hugo Chavez was the baddest, I gotta work like Chavez, and in Chicago, Fue solidario, ni Bush ni Obama llegaron a ayudarnos. No lo olvidamos más que venezolano. Esto cruza frontera, hijo bolivariano, América Unida. Como creamos ese frente, solidaridad por todo el continente.
This is Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles. My guest today is Brenda Quintanilla. She's a senior at Making Waves Academy in Richmond, but she is also one of the three poet laureates of Richmond. Bienvenidos to La Raza Chronicles, Brenda Quintanilla. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to have you. Well, my name is Brenda Quintanilla. I'm 17 years old, and I am a senior at Making Waves Academy. I'm currently one of the three poet laureates of Richmond, along with Lincoln Bergman and Dante Clark. It's been a really fun experience so far, and I'm really looking forward to what we accomplish in the future. Well, what have you been doing as Poet Laureate? Well, currently we're working on a project that we're planning, and it's similar to guerrilla-style performances. So we're planning to choose different locations in Richmond and decide on a certain topic to present on and perform and then have a discussion. So that's something that we're planning at the moment. And also we're planning a citywide event, kind of an opening for the Poet Laureate so that people can get to know us and really see what we're working towards. What has your experience been? It's actually been pretty interesting. I had never done something like this before. It's it's an honor to be one of the poet laureates. When I found out I was poet laureate, I was really shocked. I mean, I wasn't really expecting that I would get the role at such a young age because it is such an honor. So far, it has been really great getting to know Lincoln and Dante. Lincoln's really wise about different things, and I feel like I can learn a lot about him from all the stories he tells me. And Dante's just extremely talented, and I get to see how he performs and how he writes, and that also helps me grow as an artist. So it's been a really fun and learning experience so far. How did you start writing poetry? I started when I was in eighth grade. I had always written in my entire life. I would write short stories for myself, write on a diary, just things like that. But in eighth grade, I joined Raw Talent, which stands for Richmond Artists with Talent, and they completely opened my eyes to what poetry is. And I began writing different poems. In ninth grade, I performed for the first time in a competition for Youth Speaks. And that's when I started to really get into poetry more and started to see how there's all these talented youth and started to learn from them and how I can improve my poetry by being exposed to other poets. So when you first started writing, did you start writing in English? I would write a lot in Spanish because I didn't know English as much. When I came to the United States, I was fairly young and I didn't know English. So I would always just write in Spanish short stories and stuff like that. But by the time I started writing poetry, I was already pretty fluent in English, so I did write most of my poems in English. I have tried writing poems in Spanish, but I find it difficult because I've always been focused writing poetry specifically in English, so that's something that I feel I should work on, trying to write in Spanish more. Where were you from? I'm from El Salvador. I was born in El Salvador, and I came here when I was eight years old to be with my family. Were you living in El Salvador without your family those first eight years? Yeah, well, I was living in El Salvador only with my mom, and my dad was here with my brother, and my two sisters were in El Salvador as well. So when I was eight, me and my sister came, and then afterwards my other sister came. My dad and brother were already here, and then a couple of months later my mom came. But she had a visa, so she would travel back and forth. But when I came here, she decided to just stay here so we can all be together. Were your parents writing poetry or writing? Was anyone in your family already involved in literature? No, they weren't actually. My mom, she barely finished third grade. And my my dad, he barely finished high school. So school and writing wasn't really a priority for them. But because it wasn't a priority for them, they always focused it on me and helped me make school and education a priority for me. So having supportive parents like that was really helpful in me developing a passion for writing and reading and poetry. What was one of the first poems that you wrote in English? Uh, my first poem that I consider a pretty good poem is one that I wrote about my dad. I wrote it freshman year for the Youth Speaks competition. And now looking back at it, I'm like, wow, I have come a long way because that poem back then I thought it was amazing. And now it's like, oh, my God, my poetry has improved so much over time. Can we hear one of your more recent poems? And then after we hear that, would you dare to read us that early poem about your dad so we can hear what the growth was? Okay. Actually, I just wrote this a little bit ago, and it's for the Youth Speaks competition that's coming up. It's called The Dream Is Now. For many centuries, those with a shade of brown, loud accents, and tilted last names had to jump from bus to feet, from feet to bus to get on another bus. 
that would leave them five blocks from school. Kids who were supposed to be on the playground during break spent that time in the classroom doing homework because there was never enough time to do schoolwork at home. Teachers always asked them, why not take a break and go play? But the students were always too embarrassed to admit that after school they had to help their parents plant tomatoes so their homework would not be done if a break was taken. Kids were supposed to have toys and cars and backpacks, but the only toy a migrant worker had were the tools he used to dig up the crops. The only cars he owned were the tractors his father bought after 25 years of saving money. And the only backpack he had ever had was the plastic bag he stole from a customer. After so many years of this routine, up by 5 a.m., out of school by 3, work until 10 p.m., these kids grew tired. So they hopped on a truck and began to dream. Meanwhile, kids in America were waking up at 8 a.m., getting home by 2 p.m., and spending the rest of their day sitting on the porch eating grapes with a book in their hand. Maybe that's why their graduation rates are higher. Well, I am sorry those kids on the field spending their lunch break finishing homework cannot afford books. Even worse, cannot afford a backpack to even place those books in. Meanwhile, kids in America own a different backpack every school year. They don't have to walk three miles to get to school. They don't have to come home to the dazzling heat, exposing their delicate skin to the rough rays of the sun. Those kids who broke their backs picking up seeds the size of their fingers are now considered criminals by the kids who have never walked on gravel barefoot, who have never had to leave their books at school because their plastic bag would rip from too much weight, who have never seen the sun rise. Those kids with the cracked knuckles and bloody toes are the ones who have never stopped dreaming. They are the ones who now aspire to be nurses and doctors and lawyers who now love to read books because they had never before been able to, who now want to be considered human. These are the kids prevented from coming to America, yanked from the opportunity to discover education. These are the kids you call wetbag criminals when they have to cross the border illegally because you are not allowing them to walk it freely. Dreamers, let them dream. Let us dream. Let us have the same success as the civil rights movement. Let us have the same outcome as the termination of Japanese internment camps. Let us have the same freedom as every other American. Let us build so we can grow to afford real backpacks. Let us show the world, let me show the world, that the dream is now. Thank you. That's pretty much it. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. You see yourself as one of the dreamers. I am a dreamer since I am an immigrant and I'm undocumented. I'm officially considered a dreamer. This issue that you talked about, these youth, they had dreams and the dreams are about coming to the U.S. Mm -hmm. What about the dream of having all of those privileges right there in El Salvador? Do you see the possibilities of that? I do, actually. And I feel like that... All of that goes back to the leadership that is taken in different countries. Like, for example, in America, there is a very strong leadership from Barack Obama, you know, and focus on education and stuff like that. But that's not the case in every country, specifically in El Salvador. Education is not really a priority for kids there or for families. It's more about working and just trying to make enough money to survive. And kids are now being taken into gangs and into drugs and stuff like that. So it's not very healthy for kids to live there. But I feel like if countries like El Salvador and other different countries like Mexico, Nigeria, places like that, if they had the opportunities and resources that kids here in America have, then it will be much easier for the rest of the world to be as advanced as the U.S. Well, that was part of the arguments that were given for why the immigrant minors, the children that came unescorted across the border, shouldn't be returned mm -hmm. because there were all those dangers when they returned. But at the same time, do you feel that the new government in El Salvador is trying to make changes in opportunity for education, for example? I personally, I'm, I'm not very caught up on the politics in El Salvador, which is a problem because I should be. But I hope that the president is trying to make some advancements in regards to education. So let's continue with your poetry, which is so wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> it has energy and the ring of truth, authenticity. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, I try to put a lot of um, 
politics and social issues into my poems since I feel like that's the best way to get people thinking. And it seems to be based a lot on your firsthand experience yeah. and knowledge. Yeah, definitely. What poem do you want to hear? Well, you choose what you are going to do maybe at the contest, at this competition. Well, that's the one that I'm hoping to do. Oh, you just but get I still to need do to, one? Yeah, but I'm, uh, I just wrote it, so I'm still waiting on feedback from Molly, which is our raw talent director, so I can improve it more for the competition. That's, this is basically my first rough draft, and I'm sharing it with you all. So you can see that it takes... It takes a lot to put a poem into paper, but then also it takes a lot to share it when it's not finalized or when it's not polished. Well, thank you for sharing. That's very yeah. brave and thank you. very kind of you. Thank you. Pick another poem. Um, I'm going to do one that I know by heart that I've performed a lot of times, but I feel a lot a strong connection to it because it does kind of tell my story, where I come from and where I'm hoping to go because of where I come from. This poem is called White Pickup Trucks, and it basically explains where I come from and where I want to go in life. Six in the morning, and I was ready to hop on the back of the white pickup truck. Ready to leave the 8,000 square miles of my country, 14 states of El Salvador. First night, I slept on a thin bed of sand with the rock as my pillow and the wind as my blanket. No teddy bear by my side this time. Crossing rivers, jumping fences, and hiding behind rocks. Just a little 80-pound girl with only eight years of experience in life expected to pass the brutality of La Migra. Expected to jump on moving trains, to roll down long steep hills, to run from the cops in charge of not letting any of my kind go through. We had to hire a coyote. Had to find shelter for two months but the only homes we'd find were wretched shacks and leaf-topped cabins. As we ran through the bumpy desert and snuck through the poisonous trees, a single streak pierced my eardrum. It was a young woman who labored for air because she didn't have her inhaler. A man offered his arm, but she refused to slow him down and said, You go on without me. I los alcanzo. But she never made it. Everyone else reached California, land of the free. Seven years later, and this land still doesn't offer its freedom to the ones from the back of that white pickup truck. John Locke once established the three natural rights given by God, but now I establish the three natural inequalities given to my people by the government. Uno, we still struggle to get A's in high school, but we can't even apply to college because we don't have the required documentation. Dos, we don't have enough money to go to a doctor's appointment because we don't got health insurance, so we stick to basement band-aids and back alley abortions. Tres, we worry we'll get a phone call confessing that our sisters and brothers have been deported back home. And since I rode on the back of dirty, old, rusted pickup trucks, I'm to be considered an alien. But I never realized I arrived from outer space. My hallways are empty and my doors are closed simply because I don't have a green card to show that I'm American. But one day, I will be working for Washington, D.C. Federal Court and Administration for Equality. So when you see me become the first undocumented Salvadorian as the president of the United States, I will hold the key so that Everyone can see that I'm not ashamed to have written on the back of white pickup trucks. All the doors will be opened. All my hallways will be filled with hopeful immigrants. And the only thing deported will be injustice. Thank you. You just heard Brenda Quintanilla, Poet Laureate of Richmond, California. That was a wonderful poem. Thank you. <laughs> of course, there are many people who have just that fear all across the United States. Mm -hmm. In fact, all across the world, this yeah. there's this great movement against immigration. Yeah. People being so afraid of new people coming to their countries. Mm -hmm. What do you feel about that? I feel like it's a struggle everywhere. People just trying to find better opportunities in different places because they're not offered with good opportunities where they are. I mean, it's in many different countries, China, Afghanistan, you know, just different countries in Latin America, Europe, Asia. 
And it's just people trying to find better resources and opportunities elsewhere. And, of course, that's been human history since we first yeah, appeared exactly. in Africa and then immigrated all over. Yeah. <laughs> what other poems do you have for us? I guess one that I really like, it's one that I wrote about my sister. It's called Amarte a la Antigua because there's a song called Amarte a la Antigua. And basically, it's about how relationships used to be and how they are now. And for me, that's it's it's very true to see the change in in the way that people choose to have relationships with one another and communicate with one another. Okay, so it's called Amartya la Antigua. Anna, you used to send him poems to conquer his love. Used to ride bicycles to the inner part of town just to get a glimpse of his caramel eyes, tanned muscles. Used to pass notes in class to get his attention, to get him thinking that you're thinking of him. He used to shed his love through purple lilies. Showed his care through song dedications at school talent shows. Used to offer his sweater if the wind was too strong. But now, he offers to remove it if your breasts look big enough. If your butt seems firm enough. Now, he offers dirty breakup letters if you don't give him head or a nice purple hickey. If you don't let him rip your virginity like he ripped your clothes. Now, he offers punches for all the times you've said no to him. For all the times you took too long doing your makeup. For all the times he thought you were cheating on him because you got home late from work. For all the times you seemed too strong to be his woman. He used to offer you a ride home after eating at Denny's. But now he offers to drop you off in the closest prostitution bar because that's where he thinks you belong. Big sister, you no longer have to live this way. You don't have to deteriorate your expectations for a man that couldn't reach them. You're 30 now, not the 15-year-old who used to doodle his name in the back of her notebook. You were in love, so when the crucifix appeared on the pregnancy stick, you thought God would protect you, that our mother would baptize your son. But instead, she forced you into wedding vows. You thought your love would grow into a man as a boy grew within you, but he showed no pity as you washed his clothes, massaged his feet, back aching so much you felt like you were back in the farms picking tomatoes. And as he enslaved your love for him, a little boy was born, seven pounds, six ounces. He was as small as the last present your husband gave you, but he was a bigger man than your husband could ever be. Your home was a cracked rock. Every time he punched you, every time he cheated on you, every time he made his way into another woman's bed, you were the one shattered. Before he met you, he was broken too. Not by a woman, but by his father. Constant beatings, yelling, name-calling. He tried to burn the ashes of his past, but when he married you, he only made the flame bigger and blamed you for getting burned. Maybe that's why 50% of marriages end in divorce. Maybe that's why love no longer reigns over our hearts, but rather ignites the heat in our hormones to keep us lusting. Because when a man feels powerless, he'll do anything to make you weak and bring you down to where he wants you to be. When we spend all our time trying to weld a metal heart, we forget to tend our own. Anna, you know better now. I see you melting the iron, breaking the chains of forced love, becoming the woman you always wanted to be. Big sister... Write your own name on the back of that notebook. Cover your shoulders with your own sweater. You can fall in love all over again, but this time with yourself. You just heard Brenda Quintanilla, Poet Laureate of Richmond, California. These are wonderful poems. Thank you so much. <laughs> Has your sister heard that poem? Yeah, I shared it with her. And what did she think? 
she was overwhelmed with, I don't know, like happiness, I guess. <laughs> I don't know that I had written about her. So what's your process in writing? Do you just write when you're in the raw program that is with teachers and prompts? Or do you write at home and on the bus or in the middle of the night? Or how, what do you do? Um, I write a lot when I'm feeling stressed or when I'm feeling like I have I need to express myself with with myself not just with someone else and confiding with someone else but just letting my feelings out and the only way for me to completely let my feelings out is by writing and expressing myself through paper because there's no one asking me questions there's no one telling me oh well you should feel this or well you should feel that it's just me expressing myself and I wish I had more time to write more but I am very involved in school and also outside of school since I am still in high school you know the college process and being in sports and just being in different clubs it's it's really hard to balance all of that but when I do have time to write I do write little bits and pieces but nothing final but when I do write something final that I would like to perform or that I would like to compete or just something like that to make it public it's it's a longer process so first I just start off brainstorming different topics and the way that I usually get inspired if I don't feel inspired yet is by looking at other people perform so I'll go on YouTube and search up different performers I'll watch some of their performances and then as time goes by I start getting ideas and I start getting motivated so then I just start writing and just let everything out. No editing, no nothing, just writing. And then I share it with Molly, who's our raw talent director, and she'll give me feedback. I'll share it with some other friends. They'll give me feedback. And from then on, I just do draft after draft after draft until I feel it's finalized. But it's never really completely finalized because later on, as I go and look back at a poem, I'm like, oh, I should have fixed that or oh, I should have added that. So nothing's really ever finalized. Are there any other poems you'd like to share with us? I guess I can share with you one of my very first poems. I did it about three years ago. So how old were you then? Fifteen. And it's a poem about women and trying to empower women because I feel like we need some motivation from each other. You know, we go through a lot of struggles as women and face a lot of injustices. And I consider myself a big feminist. So having written this poem a while ago and looking back at it, it's like, like, I still feel this way. I still feel really motivated to advocate for women in many different ways. So it's called What Society Got Us Thinking. For Maya Angelou, do the curves on my hips affect you? Do they make you want to stop and admire our imperfections or laugh at all our flaws? Does our sense of humor seem like practice jokes? Does our perfume seduce you and make you want to rip our clothes? Because I will surely not answer to your phone calls anymore. I'll leave it on the voicemail and delete it before it's heard. Yeah, we strong girls do it that way. Lend a hand to vulnerable men. We wipe his daily sweat off and clean his weekly arrogance. We like to use the finest plates. And when we see that broken glass of water, we buy a new one, fill it out, drink it all, and pass the bottle. Because you see, useless men, always replaceable. And though great men out there, great women too, I can count from one to ten, and still too few on both. For those solid females, I hope she's a beautiful fool, is what the great Gatsby got us believing. I can still remember the constant bullying, screaming, stares at my boobs considered too big for a ten-year-old girl. This little girl. This little girl that was ordered to keep her mouth shut because she had no right to speak her mind. My wisdom forever kept trapped in the prison of men, no crime committed whatsoever. They say a gun can only kill when someone pulls the trigger. And now I cannot shoot my knowledge to the ignorant, a bullet of hope now left to roam the streets naked, looking for a gun to become its soldier. So I tried poetry, a gateway to freedom out of society's image of a perfect girl. Why is it okay for a girl to be considered a hoe if she had sex for the first time? 
but for a guy to be admired if he has two girlfriends, a side chick, a friend with benefits, and a sex buddy all at once. Where is the respect? Would you like to share another poem with us? Yes, sure. It's one that I wrote for the Reset Foundation. They had a fundraiser. That program is basically a program that will allow youth who are meant to be sent to prison to receive different alternatives and to keep receiving emotional support, educational support, and things like that, as opposed to getting sent to a juvenile hall where they are not going to get all those resources and instead are going to get dehumanized and just have their mentality changed in a negative way. Uh, So there's a poem that I wrote about that. It's called Reset. Imagine waking up to the yells of guards saying you're not worth it. Waking up to the lingering noise of keys opening cells and the cries of the man next door getting beat by his jailmate. Imagine what it's like looking outside your window and only seeing barbed wire across the wall. The only light shining above you is the one from the prison tower, and the only smiles that you see are on pictures. This system is rigged. My daddy's been living this way for five years now. He has had to wake up to the smell of rotting breakfast and dirty jumpsuits for 2,035 mornings with nothing but a small toilet in a hard bed beside him, alone in the room where even the walls ignore him. They say prison was meant to make you civilized. Instead, it has been constructing the criminals themselves, but it doesn't have to be this way. Mando, I was 13 years old when we met. He was wearing loose pants that went over his shoes, rolling on the ground because they were too long for him. With the belt buckled to his knees and white t-shirts three times his size, he loved dressing that way. In just a couple days, we became closer than best friends. Endless hours talking on the phone, going to the beach, dancing under the rays of the sun. It's like we knew what we were each thinking each time we looked into our eyes. But he lived a life I never dared to think about. Alcohol sabotaging his internal organs, weed clogging up his clothes. He thought the hustle would get him out of poverty, but instead it robbed him of his freedom. I remember getting the news one day that another one of my loved ones was now part of the system. Mando. He had been caught robbing a grocery store with a gun in his pocket that didn't even have any bullets. I warned him not to do that. I told him to stay out of the hustle that it would only bring him harm, but he didn't listen. And now he had to spend three years in juvenile hall because he couldn't handle taking orders from a girl. Then one day, my phone rang. It was the same area code as my dad's, so I automatically thought it was him. But when Mando's voice echoed off my cell phone, my neurons awoke and sent happy memories across my mind. I asked how he got my number. He said he knew it by heart but was too afraid to reach out to me, was afraid that I think he was a criminal too. He told me it was a zoo in there. I told him it was a zoo out here, but somehow our hearts made each other feel better. Months passed and I didn't hear from Mando again. A mutual friend told me he had gotten transferred, so I had no other way to contact him. Out of nowhere, on an ordinary day, my phone rang again. This time, it wasn't from a juvenile center. This time, I didn't recognize the prison system. This time, it wasn't from a juvenile center. This time, I didn't recognize the prison system. This time, a machine wasn't the one telling me what button to press. This time, I recognized the area code, not because it was the same one as my daddy's, but because it was the same one as mine. 510 Richmond, California. Mando told me that day that he was in a group home. He told me that day that he was finally free. His mind was able to decide what it wanted to think, what it wanted to believe. He reset his mindset. He reset his anger. He reset all of the times he woke up to the yells of guards telling him he's not worth it. 
Mando told me that day that this group home, this rehab organization, this new family that he had gave him the opportunity to gain a second chance. To see that life is beautiful even when you don't have dopamine running through your blood because of weed. To see that life is fair and doesn't require a gun in your pocket. To see that he can make an impact on the world if he wanted to. Mando told me that day that he was going to become a firefighter. He would reset the streets, reset the drugs, and play a new role in society. Wonderful poem. Thank you so much. <laughs> Do you have others you want to share before we end? Was there one about your father? I guess I can do that one. So this is the very, 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 very first poem I wrote and competed with at Youth Speaks. It's about my dad, and it's called My Favorite Song Reminds Me of You. So this poem, some parts of it, I used for my immigration poem, The White Pickup Truck, because I felt like they were connected in so many different ways. So you might hear some parts that are similar. It was like waking up to my favorite song. It was like my iPod stuck on replay. Replay the day St. Quentin stole you from me. A day after my birthday, worst present in my life. You replay it all. Press pause for just a split second. The day I was born, you took me into your hands and looked at me in the eyes. I had your same lips, thin like a rose petal, same nose, wolf-shaped and pointy at the top. Same eyes, slightly slanted, making my daddy's view more visible. You always found a way to fulfill your baby girl's desires. <laughs> I messed up. You always found a way to fill the gaps that could never be trespassed. Like having three jobs at a time, but only one daughter to manage. Or having a house of five, but having ten people living in it. Always fulfilling your baby girl's desires just so she could love you more. Always sticking the sword to your own back to protect her chest from getting hit. All that jaywalking you did so that you could get to the other side faster so that your little girl wouldn't get hurt. But you had to let my hand go. Handful of sweat from your hard work and love. Through all your knee knocking, elbow popping, bone aching work that you did. For me, daddy... But now you're locked up in those four walls. Accusation of false miseries. Tragedies that almost made me banish from reality. Four walls surrounding you. Pointing fingers at my innocent beloved daddy. Preventing us from being together. Preventing me from seeing your beautiful face that replicates my own. How did you breathe in the smoke of pain? But let's fast forward to your favorite part. My future. Cause here I sit now, a second version of you only better. No longer having to work on the fields. No longer having to work at a factory. Cause I will be working at Washington DC Federal Court and Administration for equality. Equality for my people. Equality for humankind. Equality for my father. People wonder why I'm the way I am. And just like Robert Frost said, I took the road less taken. Only difference is... I don't know where I stand today. I got lost, lost in the darkness, in the belief that I no longer had you by my side. The color white is all the colors mixed together, but black is the absence of all the colors instead. I'm the black, and the absence of you in my life leaves me in darkness. And just like my favorite song that reminds me of you says, there are voices that want to be heard, so much to mention, but you can't find the words. There is no answer that can answer my questions, and no question that can ever question my love for you. My favorite song puts you in my mind, and I replay it every day, just so I could keep you in my memory. Thank you so much, Brenda Quintanilla. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Poet Laureate of Richmond, California.
You just heard Nina Serrano's interview with Brenda Quintanilla. She is 17 years old, and she is one of Richmond, California's poet laureates this year. If you are listening and you are a youth poet who resides in Oakland, Oakland Youth Poet Laureate Program is a great opportunity for them, and the application is around the corner, April 3rd. The Oakland Youth Poet Laureate Program culminates with an annual poetry competition. The program includes year-round public performances and mentoring for young writers. Each year they accept submissions from talented writer poets ages 13 to 18 to be considered for the city's top literary honor. The winning poet can earn a $5,000 educational scholarship and and it will embark on a year of opportunities as an ambassador for literacy, arts, and youth expression. If you know someone who'd be well qualified or you yourself would like to apply, contact the Oakland Public Library. You can do that by calling Lena Adelwan at Oakland Public Library 510-238-7613 or emailing oaklandpoets at gmail.com. That's oaklandpoets at gmail.com. If you'd like to find out more or follow Oakland Youth Poets, you can go to facebook.com slash youthpoetlaureates. The deadline is April 3rd. been listening to Cronicas de la Raza, La Raza Chronicles on KPFA 94.1 FM in Berkeley. If you would like to listen to this program again or share it with others, you can go to the KPFA website or look for us on soundcloud.com. Just search for La Raza Chronicles. Remember to also like us on Facebook for the latest Noticias, Arte, Musica y Cultura con un sabor latino. That does it for us this evening. Tune in next Tuesday at 7 p.m. for more of Crónicas de la Raza, La Raza Chronicles. Hasta la próxima y buenas noches.